Hi, my name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. Well, guys, good evening. My name's Stephen. If I don't know you, I would love to get to. I serve as one of the leaders here. I see lots of uh, familiar faces, uh, some, some old friends, lots of friends from Texas, and uh, it is a good night to be here. Um, guys, if you know me, you know that I love soccer. If you're married to me or if you're my friend on Instagram, you also know that I love Instagram Reels. A lot. I mean, and when I send you an Instagram reel, I'm letting you know it is curated and, and chosen just for you. Like, I don't just send anything. I'm sending, like, gold. So open it up. It is really important that you see this video. I, now, I'm getting a little distracted, which is exactly what I do when I send reels. Uh, but I want to tell you about this one specific reel. This specific reel uh, is a 1970s soccer game between Liverpool and Manchester United. And uh, a ball is cleared across the midline. A Manchester United defender gets it, and the entire Liverpool team... Hey, Jason, will you pull my mic down just a bit, man? It's, I got a little bit of a ring. Thanks, man. So the whole Liverpool team just begins to run forward in a straight line. So the Manchester United defender just says, okay. So he kicks the ball. And you've got 20 guys moving this way and one guy moving this way. And I think that is an unusual strategy. What, like, what happened in the middle of this game that like everyone, 20 guys, of the 22 guys on the field, 20 of them moving one way, one guy moving the other, and nobody thought maybe we should stop this. Now, I'm not going to get into the intricacies of the offside rules uh, before 1990, which really made this strategy a little, make a little more sense. Uh, unless you guys want to. Like, we could totally talk soccer for the next 30 minutes. Uh, I would be fine with that. But I assume there's something else you would like to talk to. But, um, but really, unusual strategies are used throughout history. They've been used to give an edge for wars and battles, for business, sports competition, and really anywhere that strategy is employed. And in my opinion, God is the master strategist, and he's a master of unusual strategies. See, we get to see time and time again God seeing, uh, doing seemingly crazy things in incredibly impossible ways. And in today's passage, we're going to see God use a very unusual strategy to save his people in a very unusual way. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you kind of know how we get to this story, but most of you haven't, so let me catch you up. This all started with a man named Abram, with whom God made a promise. And that promise was given in Genesis 12. It was given again in Genesis 15. It was given again in Genesis 17. And that promise was to make of Abram a great nation, a nation that would be a blessing to every other nation on the earth. They would possess this land of Canaan as well. But in that promise, there was a small caveat. In that promise, 
the descendants of Abram would spend 400 years in slavery in a land that wasn't their own. His descendants would be given over to another people. We discovered that God had a plan, that God had a people, and God had a place that those people would live. And then we explored Abram, who is now called Abraham. We, we, described, we explored his faith in God. Faith even to give up his only son, the son of promise in a sacrifice. But just at the right time, Jesus showed up to give a substitute for Isaac. Then we learned about Isaac's youngest or younger son, Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver. And because of this man's deceit, he was running away from his brother because his brother wanted to kill him. And even in his hour of greatest despair that it, uh, caused by his own sin, God met him and showed him the commerce of heaven. He showed angels coming from heaven and going to heaven from earth. Jesus would actually go on to describe himself as the ladder on which this commerce of heaven uh, is descending and ascending. Jesus would claim that he was the one at the bottom and the one at the top. And finally, last week, we looked at Jacob's son, a man named Joseph, who'd been sold in slavery by his brothers, only to rise through the ranks of Egypt to become one of the most powerful men in the world. And by God's divine providence and sovereignty, he was able to save all of Egypt and preserve the life of his family, God's chosen people. After Joseph died, the people of Israel multiplied greatly. So greatly, in fact, that the Egyptians said, hey, we can't have this. So they enslaved the people of Israel, fulfilling God's promise to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. Through a lot of stuff that I don't have to, time to get into today, Moses, a man named Moses led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt toward the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised them. And that's where we will pick up today. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up. We'll be in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book of the Bible. It is super easy to get to. Open and just flip until you get there. Uh, it will not take you too long. We'll be in chapter 14. So the people of Israel have marched out of Egypt free. And then this happens. Exodus 14, chapter 1 says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Haroth, between Migdal and the sea. You must camp in front of Baal-Zaphon, facing it by the sea. Pharaoh will say of the Israelites, They are wandering around the land in confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. Then I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. So Egypt is behind them. They've got a clear path to the promised land. And God says, nah, turn around and wedge yourself in between Egypt and the sea. This strategy is at best unusual, at worst insane. Often the, time, the difference between an a unusual strategy and an insane one is who's in charge. If it was Moses, this is an insane strategy. But we see very clearly God is the one in charge here. Unusual strategies are employed by God so often. Take me, for example. His strategy of asking me to lead churches makes absolutely no sense. I am the black sheep of my family by far. 
I have an associate's degree, nothing more. I wear funny clothes. I have tattoos. I play video games with my friends till midnight. You know, I am not the person that anyone would design to lead churches. And yet, God chose me to lead churches, to preach his word. And I bet that just about every one of us who have followed Jesus for any amount of time, we can look at, back at times in our lives and ways that God worked and say, God, was that really the way that you had to do that? Like, was that, why, why was that your choice? Sometimes he just sends a neighbor walking by our yard right about the time that we're taking out our trash to remind us that we said we would invite them to church or over into our house to have dinner. Sometimes the strategy that God uses is your kids asking you questions about faith and you don't have answers because you haven't been in the word. You realize that studying the word of God isn't somewhere you've been, but somewhere you're going. Maybe a heartbreak was a catalyst for you finding faith or is a continual catalyst for you to seek God more. Most often, God, when God is doing something miraculous, he does it in a way that we can only see his providence at work. So we don't just assume that it's coincidence. God does not, he will not, and he should not share his glory. In fact, that's a theme of the book of Exodus. If you read the book of Exodus, one of the things that is very, very apparent is the writer wants people to know that God will not share his glory. So he makes things very apparent that it was him and only him. That he was the only way that things could have happened. God uses unusual strategies so that we are sure to give glory and credit where it's due. But this strange strategy of wedging ourselves between an army and a sea doesn't stop there. It continues. Let's see how this story continues. In Genesis uh, chapter 14, verse 5, it says, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about the people and said, What have we done? We've released the Israel, uh, Israel from serving. So he got his chariot ready, and he took his troops with him. He took 600 of his best chariots and all the rest of the chariots of Egypt with officers in each one. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the Israelites who were going out defiantly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, chased after them and caught up with them as they camped by the sea beside Piharoth in front of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians coming after them. I can't imagine that sight. The Israelites were terrified and cried out to the Lord for help. They said to Moses, is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us out here to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we can serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to his people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. There's lots to unpack here. First, God's judgment on Pharaoh has been steadily growing. Honestly, the plagues that Egypt experienced while denying God's command to let his people go, they were actually full of grace. Those were God's grace on Egypt so that they would listen and obey what God was commanding. A whole lot of grace has been extended to Pharaoh, and he still hunted God's people. And God was getting ready for the coup de grace. 
Now, that's a much funnier joke on paper than it is uh, to, be, uh, to say it out loud. Graw is spelled grace. So uh, it was funny when I wrote it, and I kept it in. It's just, it's there. So <laughs> then we see the people's response, right? God is, God is ready to bring his judgment on Israel, or sorry, on, on Pharaoh. But the people of Israel, what do they do? They see this is the first problem they've experienced, and they beg to go back into bondage. I actually think what they say in verse 11 is kind of funny. Were there no graves in Egypt that we had to come out here to die? Like, like come on, guy. Like, that's always made me laugh. Jess doesn't think it's funny. I think she's wrong. Uh, but I thought it was funny. Like, they, you know, these people who were literally got ushered them out of bondage. They're like, were there no graves there? You know, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's funny. I don't care who you are. But, but how quickly the people of God have forgotten what, they, what God did for them. How quickly did they despise a God who had brought them out of bondage? God sent Moses to deliver them from captivity, and he showed his power beyond all doubt. But now that things look a little scary, they'd rather be back as slaves than be in a place where they had to trust God for their salvation. Friends, how quickly do we forget all that God has done for us? How quick are we to complain and long for the days before we had to live by faith? Before we were following Jesus, when we just had to please ourselves, when whatever we wanted to do, we could do. When we're following Jesus, we're bound to find ourselves in spots where we cannot make it on our own. If we're following God's call to radical obedience, to seek and save the lost, to care for widows, to care for orphans, to care for immigrants, if we're following his commands to love the least of these, we will inevitably find ourselves between an army and a sea with no place to turn but up. And friends, if your life has none of these moments, if everything that you have done in your life you can accomplish with your own skills, with your own talents, then you're not following the God of the Bible. I challenge you to find one person who was following God with everything they had and didn't depend on him. I challenge you to find one person who was following what God had called them to do, and they just said, oh, I got this. I don't need God. There are no places for miracles to happen. See, God calls us into impossible situations so that he can show us his glory, but so often we want to return to our bondage. We want to return to our bondage of debt or of works or drugs or a carefree life or whatever. Whatever is familiar, whatever is comfortable, and whatever is safe. But friends, following Jesus, it ain't safe. At this point, after the Israelites have complained, Moses has a moment of divine wisdom. He implores the people with a phrase that's found hundreds of times throughout the Bible. He says, do not be afraid. He knew God was up to something because he knew God. You see, the more we know God, the more we know his ways, the more we can trust his ways, and the more we can trust him. Because God isn't safe, but he is good. Because God isn't safe, but he's good, Moses tells the people in Stephen's paraphrase, sit back and watch what God's about to do, y'all. He's about to put on a show. He's got your back. He's going to fight for you. Y'all shut up and stop complaining. Now, this translation that I have made obviously is not totally true to the original. 
But, man, Moses, Moses was pretty hot with the people. But what an unusual strategy that Moses is commanding these people, right? He's saying, the whole Egyptian army is bearing down on you. You have a sea here and a sea of humanity here. And what does Moses say? Just stand there and shut up. Like, y'all, they should be running, right? They should be like sharpening rocks or something. Like, yo, there's a war about to happen. And what does he say? He gives an unusual strategy of say, just stop. Just sit there. Wait for destruction to come. But, you know, God, right? Isn't it heartening to know that God will fight for you? The creator and sustainer of all things is the one who fights the battles for his kids, y'all. The Israelites were about to see firsthand the power of El Shaddai, God Almighty. My favorite part of the command, though, is that little part at the end, you must be quiet. Some of, some of your translations probably have said, like, be still or, or, or be silent or something like that. But, y'all, in the, in the original language, it's, it's a pretty strong imperative. Friends, I think sometimes we, we just got to stop talking. Sometimes we just got to stop complaining. See, God won't speak over you. And so if you want to hear from him in moments where your backs are against the sea, you've got to be quiet. For me, this is hard. I want to bargain with God. I want to explain to God how bad my situation is like he doesn't already know. But friends, God will fight for us and he will speak to us if we just let him. But so often, we're too busy trying to do it ourselves. The story continues like this. The Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? The Israelite, tell the Israelites to break camp. As for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. I will, I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, his army and his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So there's one little piece still of unusual strategy that God wants to employ. In order to save his people, he's going to have them walk across the sea, but not on top, underneath, right? Instead of giving them, giving them the ability to like breathe underwater, which would have been really awesome, God decided to split it down the middle and let them walk over dry land. And how's he going to accomplish this? This is what I imagine God and Moses, kind of the dialogue went like, Moses, stand over there and hold up your stick. I'm sorry, Yahweh, what did you say? Yeah, yeah, go over there, lift up your stick, lift up your hand, and I'm going to split this thing like a pomegranate right down the middle, and you guys will go across. Oh, okay, I thought that's what you said, God. Okay, I can only, like, think of the instructions that he's giving here. Death is imminent both ways. And he says, just go put your stick in the air. I got this. He's God. He can do it how he wants, when he wants, all the time. So he does. And Moses, to his credit, he obeys. And lo and behold, it works. The Israelites walk across on dry land. 
And God had been guiding the Israelites by a cloud, a pillar of cloud. And this cloud actually moves behind the Israelites. And it, it keeps the, the, uh, the Pharaoh's army from getting to the ocean until the Israelites have gotten through. And then the scripture tells us that, that God watched from the top of the cloud. And when he saw the Israelites had gone on, he, threw the, uh, he disperses the cloud and then he throws the Egyptians into confusion. So they can't even go straight through. Finally, they give up, and what they say is, the Lord is fighting for Israel. Guys, when God fights for us, everybody knows, because there's no one who can fight like our God. But as the Egyptians go to turn back, the grace that has kept them from being destroyed is rescinded, and God's judgment falls on Pharaoh and his armies. Verse 26 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. The next few verses describe literally bodies washing up on the shore. This judgment of God seems harsh. It seems severe. But the Egyptians were given every chance. Did you know that some Egyptians actually left Egypt with Israel? As Israel was going out, some of them went because they knew that the God of Israel was the true and living God. So they went. We don't really love the judgment of God. At least I don't. But it's inescapable. If you are not in right standing with God when your life ends, judgment will come and it will be harsh. So how do you avoid that judgment, you ask? Man, you guys, I'm so glad you asked that because this is the part that I love. You see, the God who employs unusual strategies offered salvation through a very unusual strategies to save us once and for all. Unlike the Israelites who would need Moses by God's power to save them again and again and again and again and again, God sent his son to save us once and for all. He did not send him as a conquering king, but as a lowly baby. He did not come to be served. Instead, he would come to serve. He would not don a crown of gold, but one of thorns as he approached his coronation on a cross and in a tomb, not on a throne. See, Jesus is the new and the better Moses. A few weeks ago, we were working through John chapter 6, and I told you that John, the author of this story, was trying to clearly make this argument, that Jesus is the new and better Moses. In fact, the second story of John chapter 6 is Jesus saving his disciples from the sea. God having power over the sea is a very important theme in ancient Israeli literature. See, they weren't seafaring people. They would fish, but they didn't go into the open ocean. They were terrified of it because it was too big and it was too powerful. So they knew that if God truly was almighty, he was the only one that could control the sea. He was the only one that could control the ocean. So they write about it constantly because they understand how strong their God is. But John's comparison isn't just two stories about a sea. It goes much deeper. 
John shows how God's plan for salvation has been the same from Moses to Jesus, from Old Testament to New Testament. The story of salvation has always been the same. Believe and watch. When Jesus came, his message was simple. Repent and believe. I got the rest. The story of salvation of Jesus, it mirrors this story of the Israelites really closely. This is where, where I want all of us to kind of zone in as I end tonight. Let's take a look. The first thing is the Lord saves from bondage. In John chapter 8, Jesus tells us, Jesus responded, truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free. The freedom from bondage is always God's plan for salvation. How often do we allow sin to make us slaves again? How often are we like the Israelites crying out to God for things when they were easier before we chose to follow him? We struggle to actually be free from our sin, from our old ways of life, from our selfishness, from our addictions. Or maybe sin isn't the big draw for you that it is for many people, so you fall into works-based righteousness. You assume that you have to work to make yourself right with God over and over and over again. You are a slave to doing better, a slave to being better, and you have not truly believed that Jesus truly paid it all. Secondly, we see that the Lord saves by grace. Guys, the Israelites did not deserve to be saved. The first time that something scary happens, they scream to go back to where they were, where God had just delivered them. They didn't deserve it. But because God is who he is, he saved. Because of God's promise to them, because God is in the business of rescue, that's what he does. The reality for the Egyptians is the same as the reality for us. Without God's grace, like it was shown to the Israelites, judgment will come. And in God's economy, there's only two options, salvation or judgment. Just as the Israelites had no chance against the army of the Egyptians. No matter what they did, those chariots were going to roll over them. They were going to kill their kids. They were going to kill their old. They were going to kill their young. They would have obliterated everyone who stood in their way. Just like the Israelites couldn't fight against the Egyptians, we can't fight against death. No matter how well we fight, no matter how much we do, sin and death will get us. But for grace. It's only by grace that the Israelites were saved, and it's only by his grace through our faith in Jesus that we are. We didn't learn nothing. Finally, we see that the Lord saves through a mediator. Consider Moses' role here. On one hand, he's identified with the Israelites. In fact, God chews him out for what the Israelites were doing. In the text, we don't see any uh, evidence that Moses was actually complaining. But God says, why are you calling out to me? So God fully sees Moses as an Israelite. Conversely, 
Moses also identifies very closely with God. Every time the Israelites needed saving, God would empower Moses to perform some act to save them. And when the Israelites messed up bad enough that God wanted to destroy them again and again, who's the mediator that goes to the mountain to pray? Who's the one that says, God, please, I know they're idiots. I'm sorry. Like, please don't kill them. Your glory is going to be affected. I know that it's already, you know, your name is being marred because of these idiot people. He, I love his prayer. He, he always says, God, why did you give me this people? He always says that. It's like, this people, why them? Moses is the mediator. But y'all, Moses is dead. He can't be a mediator between us, God's chosen people, and God any longer. We needed one that was better. We needed a new mediator that would be not just identify as human and not just identify as God, but would be fully God and would be fully man so that he could forever be a mediator between God and man. Making our appeals and bringing them to heaven, the ladder on which the commerce of heaven ascends and descends is Jesus. We needed Jesus for salvation to be once and for all. And when it was time, Jesus took the rebuke for our sin, for the things that we were doing on himself. And then he put God's ultimate power on display when he beat sin and he beat death and he rescued us. Friends, the story of salvation has been the same since day one. All of the Old Testament was setting up what God would do. All of the Old Testament was showing us how God works so that when Jesus came, we could look to the Old Testament and say, oh yeah, I see what he's saying. I see what he's doing. Remember when Jesus came, there was no New Testament. There was only the Old Testament. So every story, all the law and all the prophets were written about Jesus. And so we today, we so often read with the knowledge of Jesus but I want us to read the words of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, the New Testament, and think, what was God revealing then? Because then a story like crossing over the Red Sea isn't just like, oh, it's cool. They walked over dry land, and God saved them and killed a bunch of Egyptians. We see salvation. We see God being consistent with the content of his character always. And the Bible becomes so much more real and alive for us. I want to end with this question. Friends, what bondage do you run back to when it seems like things are falling apart? How are we like the Israelites, holding on to the bars of our prison cell as God is bringing us into freedom? Friends, I want us to put our faith in the new Moses, the better Moses. The God who fights on our behalf, who has given us freedom from bondage, who is a mediator between man and God forever, and through by his grace conquered death and hell forever. Let's pray.